Good morning, this is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Monday the 4th of May and we are still in lockdown. It is a new week and I hope your weekend was serene and peaceable or at least that the lockdown isn't wearing so hard on you as it might be. I am even starting to miss the Navarra Media office. Um, perhaps just a proxy for missing being around people they like so many. I'm finding the borders between work life and home life that little bit harder to draw as the lockdown wears on. The microphone sits always hungry on the desk, the blank page calls out at all hours of the day and so on and so on. Will it change anytime soon? It doesn't look like it. Over the weekend, Grant Shapps toured the TV studios to say that even when the lockdown is lifted or eased, it won't be business as usual for the UK. What will that look like? Well, Boris Johnson is supposed to reveal a roadmap out of the lockdown in Address to the Nation next Sunday, presumably another one of those TV addresses from number 10. There are already some pretty clear indications that that won't be tied to specific dates and will still involve some pretty significant disruption. Shaps said over the weekend that they are still looking at quarantine for all foreign arrivals and though he dodged questions over whether this should have been implemented earlier uh, as he also dodged questions about temperature checking or saliva tests on public transport. Uh, Shaps also claimed the government would be incentivising active travel, that's walking or cycling, in order to avoid a second peak. Uh, Now, this raises one question uh, about how seriously the urban environment might be permanently uh, or in the long term altered by the pandemic and set in a presumption against the private car. And there's a kind of dual pressure here, one in the direction of private vehicles, because you're not sharing air and surfaces with the rest of the plebeian mass and their germs, and one in the other direction, quite against private cars, as periods of lockdown uh, reveal what a blight the car is on the city and how much more pleasant a city not prioritised for the car actually is. Of course, to really bed that bed, bed in a change like that would require, uh, you know, quite. A, and this appears to be happening in other European cities. It would require bold action from local government, not least uh, in London with its hapless uh, and quiescent mayoralty. Uh, so that's a no then. In any case, the reason for Shaps is stressing that it wouldn't be back to normal, which is after all the most fervent desire of most of the Tory benches, is, as we all should know, the risk of a second wave of infections, which the WHO is warning is certainly possible, uh, and for which NATO, among other organisations, is preparing, uh, after NATO decided it was too slow in responding to the initial pandemic and mobilising a coordinated response. And quite what that response would actually have involved is a little hard to imagine, as you can't in fact bomb a virus. Um, I suppose they could try doing something useful for once. But certainly few here believe it's time to drop the lockdown. Less than a fifth of respondents uh, to polling over the weekend wanted schools, pubs and stadiums reopened. So the impetus isn't quite there and the political appetite for it uh, isn't really there either. So the only place it really seems to exist is in the billionaire-owned right-wing press. Funny that. Right. So through the pandemic period, we've seen waves of hostility to China crash over headlines in both Europe and especially in the United States. That was stepped up last night as Mike Pompeo, the none too bright US Secretary of State, said this in an interview with ABC News. And Mr. Secretary, have you seen anything that gives you high confidence that it originated in that Wuhan lab? Martha, there's enormous evidence that that's where this began. Uh, We've said from the beginning that this was uh, a virus that originated in Wuhan, China. We took a lot of grief for that uh, from the outset, but I think the whole world can see now 
Remember, China has a history of infecting the world, and they have a history of running substandard laboratories. These are not the first times that we've had a world exposed to viruses as a result of failures in a Chinese lab. And so while uh, the Intelligence Committee continues to do its work, they should continue to do that and verify so that we are certain. I can tell you that there is a significant amount of evidence that this came from that laboratory in Wuhan. Do, do you believe it was man-made or genetically modified? Look, the best experts so far seem to think it was man-made. I have no reason to disbelieve that at this point. Your your office of the DNI says the consensus, the scientific consensus, was not man-made or genetically modified. That's right. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I've seen I've seen their analysis. I've seen the summary that you saw that was released publicly. I have no reason to doubt that that is accurate at this okay, point. Okay, so just to be clear, you do not think it was man-made or genetically modified. I've seen what the intelligence committee has said. I have no reason to believe that they've got it wrong. Now, as I say, Pompeo isn't a bright man, and it's unclear quite what was going on in that interview. He appears to argue very strongly that there's evidence for the virus's origin in a Chinese lab, and then appears to agree with the intelligence director that there is no evidence for that. Uh, These kind of sentence-to-sentence contradictions are obviously very common in the Trump administration, but it does point very strongly to the impetus coming from the Oval Office down to find a way to blame China. Uh, This is something that Trump has made increasingly clear over the past week, as stories have emerged of active pressure to find a connection just like that. Uh, Pompeo, of course, is therefore performing over the airwaves for that constituency of one, uh, which might explain some of the contradictions which matter less when your job is to please, uh, above all, to please Trump. Uh, Of course, the very strong evidence to which he referred, well, that of course we can't see. Uh, It's worth saying, I suppose, that one way of tracing changes and shifts in political history is looking at who becomes the official enemy of a polity at a given time. In the post-war period in the 20th century, this for the West, and for the US in particular, was communism. Uh, At times this became a discourse of dual totalitarianisms, uh, with liberalism the kind of vital centre of sanity between fascism and communism. But even this argument, which was really, really a common feature of Cold War liberalism, was usually invoked to transfer the hatred of fascism, which you know, emerged during the Second World War, uh, over to a hatred of communism with all the sad and miserable consequences from McCarthyism to this or that proxy war. Uh, But in a sense, this was the ideal enemy, a sort of, you know, it was an enemy that had a geopolitical reality, at least nominally it was a competing superpower. And the risk of ideological infiltration in places high and low, from the classroom to the Pentagon, well, that was a perfect recipe for a mid-century American paranoiac. Mr. Secretary, I'm kind of new at this job. But I don't think it's good public relations to talk about waiting United States Senator, even if he is an idiot. I am United States Senator John Eggers Eisen, and I have here a list of the names of 207 persons who are known by the Secretary of Defense as being members of the Communist Party. What? Who are still, nevertheless, if you have in that, that shaping the policy of the Defense Department. Senator Ho! I demand that. There will be no covering up, sir. What? No covering up. Now, that was a hardy and durable model right up until communism collapsed, and actually for a good long time thereafter. 
Uh, and though it had the occasional crumb of reality in its basis, it really needed very little fuel to keep it going. In fact, the logic of anti-communism in- continues to be the intellectual basis for much of the response of the right and the US permanent state, even to this very day, even though it's become anti-communism without communism to respond to. In the absence of a communist enemy, the state has to cast around for a suitable replacement. For a couple of decades, it settled on shuttling between Islam and terrorism, with the one becoming the other as the best candidate for an official enemy, from the so-called axis of evil through to its disastrous war in Iraq and its aftermath, with which, of course, we are still living. Uh, all the while, newspapers here and elsewhere with, were festooned with stories uh, about Al-Qaeda's mountain lair and uh, very strange things like that. And this was a serious effort, but it was one hampered by the obvious global dominance of the US and the absence of any serious contending power at the state level. Uh, Nonetheless, I think there's a whole generation of us who sort of sat and watched in horror at the hard and very obvious work of ideological manufacture in the early part of this century uh, and who have been permanently soured on much of the press and the political system as a result. And that was especially true around the march to war in 2003, but had a, a much wider halo, a kind of corona effect around that period as well. And as a side note, it's worth remembering that when the well is poisoned like that, it has longer term political consequences than many of the merry poisoners realise, some of which I think we're living through right now. So are we seeing a shift to China, however, as the new official enemy? Well, it certainly offers things that Islamic terrorism doesn't. As an at least nominally communist country, China offers the ability to revitalise lots of that dusty old anti-communist logic, with added paranoia that Beijing is spying on us all through the 5G network. Uh, While at the same time it allows shuttling between that anti-communist, trusted uh, old anti-communist paranoia uh, and a completely paradoxical and contradictory claim that China is also a threat, not because it's communist, but because it has combined a form of capitalist production with social authoritarianism, which limits the costs, like welfare, a living wage, time off, that workers demand of capitalists in the West. Uh, Of course, such a position uh, links very nicely to efforts to roll back those kind of protections uh, in the West itself. But it also links very nicely to long-standing forms of anti-Chinese racism, including the idea that Chinese people are naturally obedient uh, or deceptive in character. It's maybe worth noting that Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, the Bible for a swathe of anti-Muslim racists, also contains a series of deeply paranoid asides about a similar clash with China. Well, certainly such a shift is in evidence. Trump focused on China quite heavily in his 2016 campaign, I'm sure you'll remember. Uh, He even accused it at one point very unpleasantly of raping the US economy. Of course, his gutting of United States funding for the World Health Organization was predicated on the idea that it's too China-centric. Here in the UK, dutiful poodle of the US global order, as of course we are, (coughs) Dominic Raab has insisted that it cannot be business as usual with China after the pandemic, Uh, and a former MI6 boss has gone on the Today programme to insist that, and I quote, China is evading a good deal of responsibility for the origin of the virus uh, and for failing to deal with it initially. 
It has been, however, Atlanticist warmongers, the Henry Jackson Society, who have been front and centre on the new anti-Chinese push. They have, of course, for a very long time been one of the most Islamophobic organisations in public life in the UK, but they've amped up their media pushes in recent weeks to focus on the malign influence, in one uh, HJS associate's word, uh, of China and demand for an inquiry not into the UK government's preparedness, not into the UK government's response, not onto its slowness, uh, but to China's behaviour. One of its directors launched a slickly produced video series for The Sun called Hot Takes, uh, with the claim that coronavirus was China's Chernobyl, again hammering that Cold War comparison, while a very splashy and frankly quite unhinged Henry Jackson Society report was the basis for a really bonkers Mail on Sunday claimed that Britain should sue China for 350 billion quid. Another even shadier Islamophobic institution, the ludicrous Gatestone Institute, went one further and described the pandemic as another 9-11 moment for the West. Can you hear them salivating? What's frustrating about this is not only how blatant and misbegotten it is, but it operates in a way that these constructions always have by taking a few crumbs of reality as the basis and whipping them up into tottering paranoiac fantasies. It's frustrating because there are real questions here about how China handled the initial outbreak, both in terms of domestic whistleblowers and in terms of the figures that it gave to international bodies. There are difficult diplomatic questions about how the World Health Organization intervenes while still being able to operate in China. None of this involves suggestions always only lent towards, hinted at, implied, that there's some sort of Chinese lab failure at the root of it all. Not only such a suggestion serves to include the real and ever more growing, uh, you know, ever more concerning roots of the pandemic, which are, uh, you know, both less glamorous, but frankly, to my mind, more concerning. Uh, they put it puts as you know, as they do the entire way we live our lives under indictment. And obviously, you can go back and listen to last week's shows where we tried to think a bit about the roots of the pandemic in global food production, in agriculture, uh, and in the way in which uh, human humanity is continually troubling that boundary between uh, nature. Uh, and human society. But you might wonder, do states need enemies? That's one, of course, for a much larger, longer show than this, though a sketch of an answer might touch on the assumption that enmity and fear is the preliminary basis for political society, that it's the preliminary basis for social contract theory. Or it might touch on the distinction between friend and enemy, which some argue is the basis for all politics, uh, right at its root. Or it might touch on the so-called populist structure uh, of modern politics itself. But it's certainly striking that all modern states, and by modern here I don't just mean 20th century, all modern states seek for and define enemies very, very clearly, and that they allow for and indeed justify uh, all sorts of things, uh, from obedience, uh, obedience to the state, to drives for national unity. And without clear enemies, the state might devolve or change from what it is now into something which simply organises and administrates welfare. And lots of people from Lenin to Hobhouse to Sidney Webb have thought that this might be a very good thing indeed, although it doesn't ever seem to like it actually happens in practice. And one might wonder why that is. Uh, But you might also wonder whether it would be possible to shift the nature of the enemy, whether one might make the enemy class structure or poverty or disease itself. It certainly confronts a more difficult political question that it's hard to fight against uh, an enemy nameless, invisible and faceless. 
And that's why, perhaps, the reach towards China is back on. On a more prosaic level, of course, the governments are watching their polling. Trump's, of course, is not good. Some polling this weekend here in the UK, however, shows government approval, although not voting intention, dipping below 50% for the first time with a week-on-week decline of about four percentage points each week. Does this matter? Yes, although it doesn't necessarily spell good things for the Labour Party. But it matters because governments are not looking right now at what their approval rate is at the moment. Governments everywhere seem bolstered by a surge of support for incumbents. Uh, They're worried, in fact, about what it might look like or uh, what part of that support might stick when, as it will, that tide goes out again. And in such a situation, you might be reminded uh, of the last lines of Konstantin Kavafi's famous poem, Waiting for the Barbarians. Now what's going to happen to us without the barbarians? Those people were a kind of solution. All right, just a couple of quick things. It looks like high on the agenda in the coming weeks is going to be this testing and tracing app, which looks like it's going to be running off a centralised NHS server bank, something that should give us all kind of serious pause. I'm not a data nihilist. I think this stuff actually really matters. Perhaps more important, though, is an intervention by Bruce Schneier, who's a very famous cryptographer, security expert, the kind of guy who you sit up and listen to when he makes this kind of intervention. Now, he says, my problem with contact tracing apps is that they have absolutely no value. I'm not talking about privacy concerns. I mean, the efficacy. Does anybody think this will do something useful? This is just something governments want to do for the hell of it. To me, it's just techies doing techie things because they don't know what else to do. Uh, I'll pop a link to his argument, which is, as you can hear, about the scale and, and efficiency of such an app, why it would fail to measure up, and implicitly the danger of any solution, so-called solution, founded on them, which the UK's look like uh, the UK's looks like it will be. Uh, I'll pop that in the notes to this show. And on a similar note, lots of the stories this morning on UK government talks. Uh, with tech firms uh, as one possible solution to the crisis that involves health passports and facial recognition to ease the lockdown. That would, of course, be a very huge and really very worrying invasion into privacy and public order. At the end of last week, I outlined some possible future scenarios as a a means of thinking about how this will end, and that slots very, very clearly into the ultra-authoritarian bio-surveillance society box. It's not a road I think we want to go down or, well, go further down. In any case, Matt Hancock will be speaking at the Downing Street press conference this afternoon to launch a massive test and trace uh, operation, including the NHS app, uh, at 5pm today. Uh, With the first rollout and study is supposed to be conducted on the Isle of Wight. Now, one issue already raised this morning is that one aspect of the success of such a system in South Korea has been the establishment of quarantine centres. So that's where you put anyone who has the virus so that they can be separated uh, from their immediate environment and separated from the possibility of spreading it. Uh, No word on anything like that yet. Ministers and the government will be very, very reluctant uh, on that front. But under the fear of a second wave, can it really be avoided? Another news that on that, the human contact element of the test and trace program will be via call centres to be run by Serco, who I'm sure won't completely fuck it up like literally every other outsourced service that they ever touch. The Financial Times this morning leads on some details from the forthcoming plan to reopen the economy, including draft papers, keeping office canteens closed, staggered shifts, social distancing enforced in offices and so on. 
this is on top of stories over the weekend about how commuting might work or not uh, in the post-lockdown period. Lastly today, the truly repellent Sarah Vine gets some well-deserved social media grief after tweeting out a photo of a bookshelf in the Gove Vine household bearing copies of the work by Holocaust denier David Irving, the notorious work of scientific racism The Bell Curve, and a turgid Ayn Rand Borothon. Imagine telling on yourself quite that badly. God forbid you should be leader of the Labour Party though and write a foreword to J.A. Hobson's book on imperialism. All right, c'est tout for this morning. Uh, as ever, do drop me a line on james at navaramedia.com. Otherwise, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, don't take photos of books by racists and proudly display them on social media, or, in other words, don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner, and I'll be back tomorrow. A bientôt. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>